Hi. So this is episode three of a four-part series and also our second episode about the Mrs. America miniseries. So if you haven't listened to our intro, episode one, or especially episode two, we think that you would enjoy those and that it would also be helpful for context. And so with that, here is episode three. Hello, and welcome to USA Unreeled. I'm Paul Adler, and I'm an assistant professor of 20th century U.S. history at Colorado College. And I'm Adrienne Horton, and I'm a culture writer at The Guardian U.S. And this will be episode two of probably two. Again, we'll see how far our enthusiasm <laughs> takes us on the FX on Hulu miniseries, Mrs. America. And as promised last time, we are going to talk this time about the appeal of Phyllis Schlafly and look at how the show helps us to understand her grassroots army, so to speak. Right. Not just her grassroots army in real life, but in the show, you know, this is really, a, in many ways, a star vehicle for Kate Blanchett as Phyllis. But there's a whole constellation of secondary characters on on the conservative half of the show that we rarely even got to in the last episode and who add a lot of depth to this, you know, what would seem like an anti-hero investigation. So we are going to talk about, you know, the those those more minor characters today. Right. Although I think as we've discussed, it's a show where... It's an ensemble. Mm -hmm. uh, certain people get a little more screen time, but it really is an ensemble. But before we get to that, as mentioned and as is reality, there were lots of living, breathing, real human beings who became part of the grassroots force that backed the anti-ERA cause. I think it's worth just quickly saying that the show somewhat addresses this, and especially the real Gloria Steinem has brought this up some, that there is kind of a counter-narrative that ERA was mainly killed by insurance companies that were worried about not being able to charge higher rates to women if ERA passed. And in doing some of the research and reading some of the scholars who've really looked through this, certainly there were companies that were unhappy with ERA that lobbied against ERA. Certainly there were male dominant in the literal form of like organizations that were mainly men who lobbied against ERA, but scholars across the political spectrum have a pretty strong consensus that the Eagle Forum, that this grassroots movement was a huge part of the defeat of the ERA. And that is why we feel it's important to talk mm, about them. Totally. And not, not only that, not only important in the defeat of the ERA in the 70s, but very much the seedlings in terms of, uh, you know, seedlings for the conservative movement today or for Republicanism today, thinking of 
you know, the conflation of religious identity with political identity, identity, the activation of fear of the breakdown of American family for a host of social and human rights issues, and even, you know, voting for women based on the identity as a homemaker or, you know, member of a church, activating that type of uh, personal identity for, for a specific political issue. That all was part of the anti-ERA movement and, and also a big part of the show, which, you know, the show is pretty explicit about showing the roots of today's Republican Party in, in this fight. Right. And I think that's a great point because while there's probably more research to be done on insurance lobby and their opposition to ERA, like insurance companies aren't the reason millions of overwhelmingly white women voted for Trump mm-hmm. in 2016 and 2020, right? Um, so in that spirit, we wanted to start with a clip of a woman, and we don't know her name, who appeared on the Phil Donahue show in 1978. So Schlafly was on Donahue's show in 78, and Donahue's format was that people could come, be guests, and a large part of the show was him taking questions from the audience for his guests. So this is a woman asking Phyllis Schlafly a question, although it has a bit of the ring of the classic, uh, I have more of a comment than a question uh, feeling. So I'll play that and let's let's talk about Sounds it. Good. Mrs. Schlafly, I'd like to ask you a question, but first I want to state something first. I have four daughters who I don't want to see go to war who would have to register at this next election, but um, or the time they would have to go. But when they were about six years ago in high school, and I saw them being brainwashed into accepting a philosophy that, philosophy that was completely uh, anti-family and anti-un-American, I didn't know where to turn, and you came on, and at that time the media was very pro-ERA and pro-women's uh, liberation, and I thank you immensely for being articulate enough for those of us who are not quite so to take over. Um, I, my question is, though, I don't want to get Let me ask you a question. What was anti-family? Well, you would have to have a daughter in the particular schools that I have tried a couple where even the books were geared towards a new revolution, a new making over of the family. Uh, divorce laws were, divorce, the divorce rate was zooming and the girls were being taught not the traditional values that I was taught and that I wanted them to be brought up in. But our generation holds the record for divorce. I mean, if it was so good for us, how I come we haven't held up? I think it's because, well, I don't want to get caught up in that because I don't think I, I want to get into that issue because it could be a long time. I think the women's movement has had a lot to do with that. But I wondered, Mrs. Schlafly, in talking about the rights of women, um, people don't see a connection. Some people don't. I do. I think it's the biggest enemy, the unborn child. Can you explain the connection uh, between the uh, abortion issue and the Equal Rights Men? So what, what, what do you make of our wow. Illinois friend? Uh, and I believe that this was filmed in Schlafly's hometown oh, really? or nearby. Wow. So the audience presumably would have named like that. Yeah. I mean, the audience there. was clearly favorable, right? I mean, there's a whole 
applause break when she talks about being, you know, articulate enough to to speak to some type of loose, unspecified defense of family values. There's just a, there's, I mean, that clip to me really kind of lays out the whole game of Schlafly's appeal. I, I, there's, for many reasons, A, there's first the, at the beginning, the mention of, you know, how the media is very pro ERA, how the media was, had, took on the assumptions of the ERA. I heard so many echoes of the type of uh, GOP rhetoric we hear now about cultural elites and like what's what's you know the definition of yeah. defining of fox news and you know conservative narratives right. against what you know this perceived cultural elite who controls the narrative um there's so a misunderstanding of like the cultural power <laughs> like seeing seeing like fame so gloria stein and being on the covers of magazines and the ERA being a very public movement as the same as material power that white women and homemakers aligned, Mm -hmm. you know, with the status quo would have a, I thought the main, you know, but the main thing for me hearing that, that I, that's so striking is the individual, you know, that particular woman saying she was so thankful to Phyllis for being articulate enough to, to as a shape and a purpose and a drive to a feeling of being sidelined. That's what I read in that statement. And that mm. to me is, I feel like so central when thinking about why, why the stop ERA movement gathered such a following and why, um, you know, <laughs> ironically for many women, it was the movement to stay at home that gave them a reason to leave the home and to, to get involved and to have a purpose outside of, um, you know, their role within the family. It's, yeah, it's, it's a very, it's a really rich text. Also, I should say the last thing is that, you know, the fact that the whole comment wraps up on a question about abortion and how Stop ERA ties into the anti-abortion religious movement, again, kind of lays out the whole fight and strategy of the anti-ERA and Republican movement at that point. Phyllis is a very eloquent speaker. Mm-hmm. Right, she is great at articulating ideas in easy to understand, emotionally compelling ways for those who are going to register with those ideas. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing, you know, we're that that there is primary source live evidence of that mm-hmm. that that her steeliness was attractive to people, and that you know, the pointedness of her comments. And we've talked in the past episode about how she was kind of a, you know, a gadfly in terms of taking on her opponents, you know, really, I think appealed to people who, yeah, who, who I guess, I don't know how they, I should say, I don't know how they missed the feminine mystique, but like a subset of people for whom, who were looking for a more concrete, you know, directed ideology. She really, you know, spoke to that isolation. That's what I. Right. And, and yeah, and especially people who had somewhat uh, um, conservative leanings already. Mm-hmm. And I also very much hear in her comments when we talk about defensive home, right? She spends the the woman, the this real life woman in the Donahue episode, a lot of time talking about her kids, mm-hmm. right, and the schools, and that fear, which was also 
a big driver of a lot of the homophobic activism, especially in the 70s. Mm. Uh, Anita Bryant was the other big right-wing woman celebrity of the era. Um, I forget why she was a celebrity. I think she'd been a singer. (laughs) But her main campaign was around uh, banning queer folks from being able to be school teachers. Uh, and that just, it, so this defense of home is specifically defense of the kids mm. and the purity of the kids also struck me. Yeah, that, and on that note, you know, the the vagueness of, or at least the vague terminology she's using to describe, quote, family values, um, I think is really mm. telling, you know. She's not specifically saying what is actually at stake. There's just there's a lot of racism and homophobia and even classism implied in that comment, mm. but it's not it's it's you know it's glossed over and sanded down. And I think that again was part of Phyllis's appeal, right? You know, we've talked about how she was actually aligned with uh, segregationist organizations in the south with the kkk right um and but that was never the the marketed <laughs> marketed thing that people were signing up for it was it was a, it was right. you know, a much more pleasant sounding defensive family which could mean you know on the surface who's yeah with that? right and it also i mean thinking about at least my hopefully not too impoverished understanding of intersectionality mm-hmm. is that one of the core ideas is different identity markers get activated more and less for people at different points, Mm -hmm. right? So that's the way, as we were talking about previously, that Phyllis can be a racist, but whiteness was not like the proactive thing. Identity marker she was pushing, it was traditional gender norms, sexual orientation norms. Mm -hmm. Exactly. More so. Yeah. Which especially in this era of the 70s, sort of soon after the height of the civil rights movement, right? This is a period when for a lot of white people, it's like, okay, now it's impolite at the minimum to say those Mm -hmm. kind of more racist things but yeah that you're right that there there's implicit all of it in in that woman's statements Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. of all the identity markers Mm -hmm. and of of what and traditional values traditional values is a bucket that can hold yes (laughs) but much better said than i did (laughs) Uh, um yeah well you know we were talking earlier about how well there's a lot of of different strands of uh appeal articulated in this woman's comment to Phyllis Uh in her question and I think you know as we were saying some of these characters you know secondary tertiary ensemble characters on the conservative side kind of isolate those different um patterns I should say and um yeah, which is all of an, ele- an inelegant seg- segue into talking about one of the more interesting, you know, uh, pro-ERA characters, or sorry, anti-ERA characters in this show, which is the character of Pamela. Um, yeah. Uh, well, and I, go ahead. I was thinking about Pamela because when 
the woman is talking about how she doesn't like that the divorce rate is going up. Mm. And then Phil is like, well, it's our generation who are getting all the divorces. What do you make of that? All the main thing that flashed through my head is there has there been many characters in TV history who more desperately needed a divorce than Pamela? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So Pamela, for those who don't know, is one of the early followers of Schlafly, not just the movement, but Schlafly herself. They're from the same hometown. She uh, is married to a man named Kevin, who's pretty explicitly abusive. Um, one of the running themes throughout the series is that she's afraid of what he'll do to her if he finds out that she lied to him or is home too late. He's always calling to check up where she is. Very possessive, um, very fear-based relationship. Uh, yes. And she is best friends with a character named Alice, who we will get to, uh, and frequently expresses to Alice and Phyllis that she is looking for a break, looking for an out, looking for help and is continually shot down. And then especially by Phyllis who attributes all of her marriages problems to Pamela, not trying hard enough or not even making the right choice in the first place. Yeah. And we should say Kaylee Carter is the name of the actress who plays Pamela. And it's one of the more quietly devastating performances you can just see on her face in so many of the scenes just her weariness and pain Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and not just right not just that and i think where the acting is brilliant is it's not just the scenes where it's specifically talking about her marriage or kevin but just suffused throughout you just can tell Absolutely. She is someone who's trapped. Trapped, but also finding her only community and only sense of individual worth, really, through the Stop ERA movement. I mean, her friends, her only friends that she sees outside of the home are Alice and Phyllis and Rosemary, who yeah. is, again, a real, a real, character, or a real person. Um, so it's kind of that, you know, double-edged somewhat uncomfortable portrayal to kind of root for Pamela to be, to find her own independence. But her vehicle for that is through, you know, being extremely devoted to Phyllis's cause and believing in the the competitiveness that, that Phyllis portrays. Like there's a, there's a scene where um, I think they, they lose a floor vote in the Republican convention and Pamela is like inconsolable. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Right, because it's it's at the 1976 Republican National Convention mm-hmm. when anti-ERA forces tried to strike pro-ERA language from the Republican platform, which again, going to a theme we've talked about, right, that was in the platform <laughs> in 1976. Um, yeah, and she, right, she is... And and I forget, and Phyllis is just in this very tactical slash strategic mood of like, well, but we we got more votes, you know, we're on our way and there's other issues. Uh, and yeah, Pamela's just so feeling betrayed, mm-hmm. I think in a way that also speaks to her marriage, right? Because, you know, the further thing, as we're sort of saying, is 
what's especially horribly ironic is that the one outlet Pamela finds outside the house is doing activism to literally maintain the status quo that more so than other women characters portrayed is wrecking Mm -hmm. her life. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think one of the, you know, strengths of this show and part of why I love it so much is that you can see that irony really clearly and also still understand emotionally why Pamela as an individual woman, as an individual character is making the choice to continue with the stop the RA movement and, um, and why it is a balm to her in, the, in many ways. Yeah. And that she, she is so ensconced in a world where this traditional repressive, more patriarchal form of relationship is so the norm that it seems hard for her to escape thinking about it. I remember, I think, I, it, yeah, it is Pamela. One of her first lines in the show is when they're at the the hair salon and they're talking about marriage and everything. And Pamela says, but I, I just don't get it with Gloria Steinem. She's so pretty. Mm-hmm. As when they're talking about why feminists don't get married or, or whatever. Um, and also... And I think, you know, a hat tip to the show for some realism in this, that Pamela's story ends in a very realistic way, but like, my God, a heartbreaking way. Because she goes to Houston, right, and for the 77 convention as an elected delegate. She doesn't tell her husband that she's going. Because she would not be allowed. She causes a Right. And she has no money that's not her husband's. And there she's talking about how she's so afraid of getting pregnant again. And actually, Adrian, I'm curious if your take on this, Mm. do you think she's just responding to pressure? Do you think there's an implication that there's marital rape happening in her relationship? Um. I'm sure, uh, I didn't think of that specifically, but I certainly think it's implied that her choice in wants and desires doesn't, and consent matters not at all in this relationship. So whether she would yeah. call it that or, yeah, I mean, I certainly think that's like an element of her relationship for sure. Yeah, or at least something along the lines of that gut-wrenching scene in the first episode with Fred and Phyllis. But anyway, to to finish up the saying with Pamela, right, is that the final time we see her, she's still volunteering with Phyllis. Kevin won't pay for a ticket to go to this big ball. And she has a baby. And she's saying, what is she saying? That, you know, I've been working harder to make Kevin feel appreciated Mm. or something like Stepford's wife. On the advice of Phyllis. On the advice of Phyllis. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think that that's true and especially matches well we'll talk with Alice but matches nicely with Alice's story of the show not giving us it's more sort of liberal viewers too much of an out of imagining like all the people escaping mm-hmm. this this orientation and orbit. Definitely. Yeah, and I think, you know, what's one of the things that's so interesting and devastating about the the Pamela characters as we've said is you get these moments where she seems to you know 
feel not necessarily empowered, but powerful. Like she's reclaiming some sort of voice. Um, and I think that's something the show does really well is these, these micro level explorations of um, why people who there's the question is always like, why do women vote against their interests? So <laughs> these micro level ex- explorations of why certain women in, in, in this case, like a fictional character and also some real Schlafly figures, family figures um, worked for a movement that was actually reinforcing the rigidity of, of family values that were, you know, limiting their lives. So in Pamela's case, you know, she felt she was being told by, by Phyllis to stay in a marriage that was actively abusive, but the actual experience of participating in the movement felt powerful to her. Um, The irony of that is, is really rich. And I think, you know, another character where we see this is, that of Eleanor, who's a, Eleanor Schlafly, who's a real person. She's Phyllis Schlafly's sister-in-law, um, was not married, uh, no children. So in fact, excluded really from the movement, the movement's main aim. Um, and, you know, treated pretty terribly by Phyllis on an interpersonal level. I mean, Phyllis often talks down to her, she shoulders her with the burden of taking care of her own children while Phyllis essentially works a mm-hmm. full-time job as a political activist. Um, but Eleanor in the show still aligns with the power center that is that is Phyllis and that is the Stop ERA movement. Um, and in real life, as, as we've talked about, you know, it's still very much within the Eagle Forum tent. Yeah. In... Because in real life, she was sort of similar to her brother, a very dedicated anti-communist. And, you know, I have a quote that I found from a 1971 newspaper interview with her where uh, she says, you know, last year we spoke on the women's liberation movement and explained the communist influence in it. Mm-hmm. We have covered hair, meaning the musical. We kind of have, we cover whatever we think is the most important problem at the moment on communism. So she was running this explicitly anti-communist foundation. And I think the show, so opposite of what I was saying with Pamela, I felt the show pulled some punches with Eleanor. Mm -hmm. There are, it does show that she was politically involved, but she, in real life, the little sense I have is that her anti-communist Catholic conservative politics, and again, this speaks to the theme we talked about, we'll talk about of religion, really... That was her world view, mm-hmm. right? Was through that. And I think it's a big explainer of why she feels so depressed in the show's depiction of her, at least, over not having been married. Is it's almost hard to disentangle how much that is what I imagine is you know, genuine feeling of wanting to have found like a romantic partner. And how much it is like she's not fitting in with the social norms through no fault of her own, right? She's like a rebel 
who doesn't want to desperately doesn't want to be a rebel. Mm-hmm. 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 Definitely a rebel who also doesn't want to be a rebel, but still has enough, you know, ancillary benefits of being associated with Phyllis as a leader in the stop ERA momentum that she ultimately stays. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I also, as I was sort of mentioning, and I think we could, we can then talk about is Fred, mm-hmm. right? Uh, Eleanor's brother who Fred is an interesting character, both in real life and in the show, because in some ways he was more supportive of Phyllis than you would think a lot of men, especially from his social context, would be at the time. And from what I've read about the real Fred Schlafly, he was generally quite supportive of her political career, again, because he was a intense, hardcore, conservative Catholic anti-communist who fancied himself a political activist. But again, that becomes interesting because his social conservatism hits up against Phyllis's just clear, greater talent than Mm -hmm. he has at being a a catalyst for right-wing political And of dominating the message, right? Like she's, you know, she's very clearly the front of the movement, the leader of the movement. Yes. Very much like, you know, a cultural power center in her own right. Also worth mentioning that Fred is one of two male characters in the show. Like very, very few, Uh very few male characters that get any repeated screen time. It's really a female ensemble, which is amazing. We do actually have some characterization of of Fred, but yeah, like you're saying, again, (laughs) an irony irony that makes very little sense (laughs) on paper, but um, was, you know, pretzeled into being in practice. I think you have a a clip that we were going to show where they basically try and make the case that Phyllis is, quote, submissive, um, because that's very important in the movement's image, even though that's not actually... uh, (laughs) how it was conducted, nor how it felt for as portrayed in these micro-level characters, right. um, how it felt for the woman involved. Yeah, so I'll set this up. I think this is also from 1978, but it's Good Morning America. Fred and Phyllis got interviewed. Quick side note, unfortunately, what is not on is that they mention at the end of the interview that the next day they're going to have um, Marty and Bella Abzug on to be interviewed as a counter. I was like, I want to see that. Yeah, I want to see that. <laughs> um, but yeah, and this clip, the show writers took the uh, actual Fred words and inserted it into the real debate that happened with Fred and Phyllis Schlafly versus Brenda and Mark. Here it is. Your wife, we have come to know from television and radio and having an occasional conversation here 
Uh, she has a very strong, dominant kind of style to the way she works. Is she the same way at home? Does she wear the pants in the family? <laughs> no, she doesn't. I'm uh, obviously uh, physically larger than she is. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, he chins himself 25 times every morning. <laughs> <laughs> and she's very uh, submissive. Submissive, oh, Phyllis Schlafly, <laughs> submissive. I have. Is that right? Well, uh, um, Fred is the boss of the family, and that's the way uh, it is. And you talk about these other things that I've done, uh, and some of them have had pleasurable aspects to them. But really, nothing is as much fun as a happy, long-time marriage and the fun of growing children. It really is more fun than all these other things that I do. Uh, my, my face is in my hands. <laughs> um, nothing is more fun. Pleasurable. You know something is fun when uh, you have to be told that nothing is more fun than oh. being married and raising children. Yeah, I mean, it is interesting, right? In the show, and I think this speaks to a bigger theme, which we've sort of both completely been talking about and not been mentioning as much, which is men mm -hmm. or the men. Yes. Uh, right, right. The, <laughs> the people, the creators of the problem. Uh, when I, so first when I'm thinking about the show, mm -hmm. one of the most powerful striking scenes, I think comes shortly after that scene in the show mm -hmm. where they get in Fred and Phyllis gets in, into a big argument and Fred just sort of leaves in almost a weird example of actually like helpful couple dynamics where he's like, I know I'm mad. I'm just going to like exit for a mm. bit. And then she slaps herself. Yeah. Do you remember I that? I remember that. Oh my God. <laughs> I, I was like, if there is ever five seconds to explain internalized misogyny, like that is it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, again, <laughs> but that's like the center of the pretzel right there. Right, right. Um, but the, yeah, this idea of that I think partly has roots in some sort of more conservative Christian of the, the use of the word submissive and sort of the idea of the submission mm -hmm. of the wife to the husband and just this idea of there being a natural order to things i think that's where her slapping herself where him saying that she is submissive who wears the pants mm -hmm. in the family right these are all presented as like as natural as photosynthesis mm -hmm. let's talk about one of our favorite episodes which is the penultimate one called houston yes houston houston uh, okay Wow, where to even start? I guess, so for, you know, for context, the Houston episode is anchored around the 1977 um, Conference for Women. I hope that's the, that's not the official name, but that's, you know. It captures what it, it was. It was, it was, you know, a, a conference years in the making for feminist pro-ERA folks from around the country to gather and pass a, a you know, symbolic platform. There's a run with a torch being passed. It's, you know, it's both, you know, a supposed to be modeling political change, but also like a large cultural event, very, very public. And as a result, Phyllis, 
Schlafly organized a counter rally uh, in which they lied about the crowd size. We'll get to that later. But um, okay. actually, Lottie Beth Hobbs was the one who organized oh, really? it. Phyllis was like kind of secondary. That that is interesting. Noted. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but the point of this episode in the show—that's all kind of a backdrop right. for Alice, played brilliantly with incredible face acting by Sarah Paulson. Um, and Alice, we love Sarah we Paulson. Love Sarah Paulson. Um, and Alice, as we've you know mentioned before, is kind of the right hand deputy to Phyllis. They've been friends for twenty years. Um, they met through their their children's you know PTA or something right um and it's alice no that's that's, yeah, that's yeah. literally made through pta and then it's actually alice that introduces phyllis who is an anti-communism activist a defense activist to the er like to the idea of mobilizing around stop era mm-hmm. um and in this really you know empathetic um kind of loyalty scrambling episode we follow Alice, who's traveled with Pamela, um, and is feeling, you know, she's feeling intimidated when she gets there. She wants to do her her job for the movement. You know, she wants to perform well um, and has is increasingly finding herself yeah. um, a very devout Catholic spiritual person sidelined by the more, um, more hardline, power for power's sake oriented members of the stop ERA movement who are increasingly, um, you know, winning out. This would be Rosemary and then herself. Um, yeah. And after, you know, again, we talked in the beginning about the, the nameless woman who thanked Phyllis on the Donahue show for articulating um, kind of this mm-hmm. kind of like loosely vague soup of family values that she wanted to defend but didn't know how to say Alice in a, in a really poignant scene loses her train of thought on national television, trying to, you know, stick to the talking points um, that are increasingly more extreme and radical than she ever signed up for. Um, And no, and no longer based in fact, there's one moment where, you know, she, she tries to cite a study saying that more people oppose the ERA than support it. And she's pressed on this, and then she just she, fl- uh-huh. she very flustered and and Rosemary is like, well, you know, studies can always be wrong. Just say studies are wrong, polls are wrong. Um, but right, and I think it's worth sort of a, a bit of the context is that it's sort of coming into that moment is right. We talked a bit about how Alice is portrayed, mm-hmm. and again, she's a fictional character, a composite of some elements of some real people, but I think mainly her her own person so to speak she's portrayed as often the one who's a less politicized more into it for a sort of sense of personal ethics right so she's the only character is portraying the show who has real issues with siding with open white supremacist bigots in the past she is very much leading into the houston episode driven by a sense that she's being condescended to not her personally Mm -hmm. but women like her being condescended to by mainstream feminism which is a very populist 
thing, right? That a big part of her story is that she's genuinely feels like she is the average person and snooty elites are kind of telling her how to live her life. Also contrasted with Pamela to the extent we have a sense of things. It seems like Alice's marriage is actually a pretty mm -hmm. decent one. Like her husband is only seen in the last episode very briefly, but the way she sort of talks about him, her general demeanor suggests that it's maybe not, not a great marriage, but like a, a Right, De certainly not abusive, but yeah. better than just not that low bar. Uh, um, and I think it, it's very key that she's not as ideologically right wing driven. Yeah, she's small c conservative leading into Houston. Do you want to uh, talk about what happens after she blows her interview? Yeah, so after she blows her interview, she goes to to you know blow off some steam with a drink at the bar, um, and you know, very true to I think a lot of this movement, some of the vagueness we talked about. She's very you know interpersonal niceness is very high on her list of importance. Um, how her politics impact people materially uh, that she does not know doesn't matter, but being nice to people and to strangers and expecting some type of reciprocity is. And so she's at a bar and meets this, you know, fellow Southern vaguely woman who, you know, also loves talking about her kids and, you know, is very, is very encouraging and supportive of her and listens to her talk about and religious and religious and religious. And they say a prayer together and they both have a best friend. That's she has a best friend that reminds um, Alice of Phyllis and they have a great heart to heart and it's only then that the woman reveals that she's a member of now National Organization of Women um, right and and Alice spirals from this not from the drink and from a sleeping pill but also from the knowledge yeah. that this woman that she really connected with and she doesn't connect with many people outside of her it's presumed outside of her um, milieu in Illinois right. um, is a feminist. And this goes, and then we have this fun trippy episode where she, she, this it's, she serves as kind of your, your like uh, POV into this whole uh, parade, like women's conference right. festival. Basically. And, and I loved, and I sent you a photo of this where I was like, I found the real woman that she talked to. Oh I mean, it's not actually a real woman, but you know, this photo from the the Spirit of Houston booklet of a older white woman wearing a hat that says pro God, pro family, pro ERA. Mm. Um, what was her name? And it, it doesn't say, okay. I think, in the booklet. Um, but, but sort of indicating that the there, the show isn't just creating something out of thin air, right? There were people with a lot of seeming attributes of conservatism who were also feminists. Yep. Um, so I just thought that that scene, especially seeing that photo, I was like, okay, like this is realistic. There would like there would have been a person like that. Mm -hmm. Definitely, definitely, and I think it's completely realistic that Alice, as a character that's established over the series, would would be interested by 
yeah. these other women that she's these feminists, these boogeyman feminists that she has never actually really encountered and realize that many of them aren't all Gloria Steinem's. They're not all from New York City and they're not all you know, yes. like out of touch glamazons who who look down on her. <laughs> um, and another funny moment in this we <laughs> we should say so she goes on this 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 trip really um through the conference this is our our way of seeing the many it kind of reminded me of like an after prom event where there's like different booths and it's like it's a carnival <laughs> um of of celebrating you know different women and and there's a moment where she you know drug stands up and sings this land is your land yes <laughs> To a group of feminists, only to have Flo Kennedy reveal um, that she's singing a socialist anthem. Um, right. And then Alice is what had always been purely a patriotic song, and what she believes in is patriotism. To reveal, so for her, the the reveal that they those two are synonymous um, is even yeah. further destabilizing. Um, all of which is to say, you know, it's a real it's a real character trip for Alice and ends with her um, realizing that the movement that she's given so much of for the past decade uh, has really left her behind in terms of the values that she, you know, originally started with. And she's the one that really, you know, initially brought this to. Yeah. And I think we have a clip that you were going to play of her, you know, approaching her, you know, comrades basically for lack of a better term and being like, is is this what are we even about anymore yeah and i wanted to preface that by sort of giving my reading mm. of it so let me start with this the first time i watched mrs america i did not like alice's arc in the end oh, really? i actually felt that it was the writers giving an out for liberal audiences to be like a feel-good story mm-hmm. of like the conservative woman who like sees the light and i was like the, the it just feels a little too D- disney in a weird way like disney via i don't know like a barack obama <laughs> speech or something watch re-watching the show i now love the alice oh, arc. okay tell me more we talked last time that religious devotion and sort of religious conservatism was the main marker of who would be in and out of like the women who are anti-ERA versus pro-ERA. I think what the show says though, is that religion is also a key route of getting people out of that. And I sort of thinking personally, since Aaron and I have moved to Colorado Springs, a number of our best friends here are women who grew up in conservative Christianity And because of their engagement seriously with Christian texts, right, that there are parts that, right, not all of, like, the Bible is, like, perfectly suited for conservatism, Mm -hmm. right? There's a lot of anti-wealth stuff. Mm -hmm. Like, there's pieces about doing, you know, good deeds, you know, that good deeds in ways that suggest more structural solutions. And so what I think rewatching it is, Alice's arc is her finding through her own Christianity a route out of where her Christianity has led her. Mm. And her trip through Houston, I almost kind of read as similar to a sort of biblical trope, right? Where when characters go through these conversion processes, it's often a journey, right? Mm -hmm. Like 
And in those travels, they have these moments, right, that like lead them in a new direction. I mean, I'm thinking, and also because it's more relevant to Alice with Christ, right? He meets the lepers and he, you know, there's the money changers and there's this and that, that, and for Alice, she's encountering all these people who are like changing the way she thinks about the world. And I think a big moment is when she goes to the talk about how early Christianity was actually less patriarchal, yeah. like very early Christianity. And she takes communion from a nun and she's like, you can't give communion. <laughs> um, and that all leads to this, the moment uh, that I can now play where the next morning, Alice comes back to the Eagle Forum uh, room at the hotel. Mm. And she says, Excuse me, I... I... I wanted to ask why we're opposing all of the feminist resolutions. We're not anti-employment or education or minority women. I'm not saying that we shouldn't fight for what we believe in, but shouldn't we try to find consensus about something? But you give the livers an inch, they'll take a mile. Let them. There's a lot of land. If we want to be taken seriously, we, we have to show that we are not hard-hearted. That we are not stubborn just for the sake of it. That's not Christian. I came here to defend myself. But I have to ask, who exactly is attacking us? <sighs> There's a lot of land. I mean, one thing I'll just quickly say is, there's not even subtext here to what I'm saying. She literally says it's not Christian. But Adrian, yeah, what, what did you think about Alice's Christian journey? Oh, wow. Wow. Um, first of all, uh, and this is pointed out by our lovely producer, Erin, <laughs> that it's not visible in this clip, but the looks that she's getting from the room of anti-ERA activists while she's saying this. Um, if looks could kill, uh, these would. She's just, yeah. it's more of like, how how dare you be so inconvenient right now? Yes. Um, but what's, uh, kind of has a revelation with this land is your land. <laughs> yeah. But um, what you're seeing right here, and what I think is so great about the scene is the divergence between Alice's Christian identity and her political identity as an anti-ERA activist. At this point, at, at, you know, in the beginning when she first brought it to Phyllis, I think she very much saw the defense of of motherhood and of raising children as she conceived of it, of, of being um, in the home and, and feeling like homemaking was being taken seriously. This is how Alice would probably frame it, was very much in line with her with her Catholicism and with the religious aims of the movement at large and what you're seeing now, which I think is, you know, subtly, but like very clearly a call to the moment that we're in is that the anti-ERA movement at this point was a very much a political identity of winning first, of yeah. defining against anyone who wasn't clearly for them. Um, 
a game and, uh, you know, a movement that had, you know, coalesced around and become strengthened and emboldened by defining oppositionally against the, the model of, you know, a Schlafly type uh, activist and woman. Um, and watching, you know, the, one of the founders of the movement, the person that even brought it to Phyllis, feel that it is totally passed her by and become even too extreme. And, and like she asked, who are we even, who is even attacking us? Yeah. <laughs> um, the boogeyman's being so big and so no, so untethered from reality at this point, the reality that she's experienced, you know, in her like funhouse drug trip through <laughs> the conference. Yeah. The reality that she experienced actually getting along with someone who worked in now um, has become too much. And I think that it's a it's a a little bit of maybe liberal wish for fulfillment to see someone close to Phyllis break from her. And we know probably in real life, Alice's politics aren't actually that different from Phyllis's. But um, yeah, it's 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 a very moving moment for sure. Yeah, although I think we had talked about before one of the recordings that I have this sort of dream vision of Alice's <laughs> uh, political life afterwards, which eventually leads her to becoming a moderate suburban Democrat, which I think is a, a big accomplishment from where she starts. Uh, I would love that for her. And makes me think of kind of this phenomenon that uh, we've been seeing, or at least I've been reading about in the news of, of white woman evangelicals moving away from the church, or at least certain elements of the church, not leaving it entirely, but feeling that they their Christian identity and the pro-Trump, pro-GOP identity of Southern Baptist, Southern evangelical churches are no longer tenable. Um, like for instance, there's a, She's not a minister, but she's a big figure in, um, you know, Southern evangelical circles named Beth Moore, who recently said she's no longer a Southern Baptist um, because she could no longer identify with the values of the church. She's still a Christian, but um, that no longer was compatible with the political identity of the church. Yeah. Um, So I, you know, very much see this scene as, you know, an an early, you know, it's imaginary because Alice is a composite character but probably something that echoes uh, or precedes the moment that we're in now. Yeah. And I think this goes to some of the questions we've been discussing of the point of portraying conservative women and the idea that uh, is the portrayal always bring empathy, Mm -hmm. which decrease, which I think, you know, trying to bring out to the logical conclusion that critique and Mm. it seems to me the logical conclusion is a concern that people would not carry out their political activity to promote progressive causes with as much enthusiasm is the the real world ultimate effect I'd see. Mm. And, you know, this is where I'm saying with Mrs. America and with Alice's story and why I came around to really loving it is I think it's saying to a liberal and often very secular audience, like, hey, for some people, and considering the tiny vote margins with which elections are made these days, mm-hmm. tiny margins make huge differences. Right. Religion is one of the ways that some people who are really deeply embedded in conservatism might come out of it in very authentic, genuine ways. 
Wait, did you grow up Catholic or a Protestant? Norm, not like the most nominally Catholic. My dad's family is very secular um, or openly anti-organized religion. My mom's okay. parents are devoutly Catholic. She grew up Catholic. And I went, I was like Christer, so Christmas and Easter. Um, and the, <laughs> like I think there was maybe an attempt at very briefly to go regularly and then hockey practice and hockey games on Sunday night like very much won out um and okay. that just never that balance just held throughout my entire childhood so got it yeah never got like never got first communion we didn't get that far <laughs> yeah fair enough but you yeah. also have some, some evangelical yeah it's yeah that's another that's another story it's yeah yeah, there's a mix of catholic evangelical christianity on one side of my family yeah yeah um it's a a range anyways (laughs) (laughs) moving on moving on should we do just uh you know some quick hit favorite parts of the show there's so many registers emotional mm-hmm. registers uh up. let's do let's do cinematic comic tragic yeah uh, i thought that the this is somewhat both on comedic and cinematic but i'm going to use it for my cinematic phyllis getting hit in the face with a pie mm-hmm. A, very satisfying, right? It's the most comeuppance that she gets. Also, such an 70s kind of feeling scene with the freeze frames and the slow-mo. It reminded me a little bit of some scenes from uh, Mean Streets, the Mm -hmm. early Scorsese film where he does sort of freeze frames on characters and musical montages and they use um, the Blitzkrieg bop uh, and it's just so well filmed and so good. As far as emotional moments, all of them, (laughs) (laughs) I think when Bella Abzug, who I think was the a character who deeply resonated with me visits Betty Friedan at Friedan's apartment. Mm-hmm. And Bella says, does it bother you that we're not the radicals anymore or something to that degree? And Betty Friedan says, no, it's great. Like it's, you know, middle America now. And Martindale just has this look that is pensive and kind of sad. And that theme through the show of the questions of pragmatism and idealism, which I think are usually just so neatly siloed in TV shows about politics, and I felt in Mrs. America are dealt with in wonderfully nuanced ways where you could really have arguments among the characters about the best course forward and not make an easy decision, right? The whole argument of do you engage with Phyllis or do you act as if she doesn't exist? Waterworks. (laughs) Just (laughs) slip and slide water park waterworks for me. I love love that moment. I I didn't even think of that. That's a good one. That's a good one. There's, There's so many good ones. How about yours? Oh, man. I mean, just to start, and this is just purely on a style level, um, but there's a moment in the first episode 
or like, you know, 10 minutes in where Phyllis is going to visit Washington. This is the first time the viewers accompanying her to Washington. And she struts up to the Capitol in this like pink tweed, extremely Midwest conservative suit to Steppenwolf's Magic Carpet Ride, which is just a good song anyways. And I wrote this in my review. But that was the moment watching where I was like, oh, hell yeah. This is (laughs) all right. This is fun. I'm here for this anti-hero. Like, oh, this is gonna be a fun show. Just, you know, like, let's go prestige TV, baby. So um, that, like, I just on a pure style level, I'm a sucker for, like, a good strut. And it was a great main character entrance strut. And she's walking by these, these EO, like, pro yeah. protesters into the halls of power to yeah. uphold the status quo. And um, <laughs> so it was that and the... Uh, I feel love with uh, Gloria strutting down the hotel room yep. and Pamela and Alice. Those I are the a, two. I was about to say that, that actually like there's a couple great struts in this series. And the second one is when is when Gloria gets a slow-mo strut in front of um, Pamela and Alice. Uh, who have, you know, she is a celebrity. And like, I, I, I did love that the show handled kind of the double-edged sword of celebrity for her, both within the feminist movement, mm-hmm. um, the jealousy and, like, complicated emotions that breeds in Betty for Dan, and, and also the fact that, like, her celebrity being an attractive white woman um, was not an asset for a lot of, for uh, for other members of the feminist movement, in particular mm. Black women who, you know, deserved and wanted attention as well. Um, yeah. So that's a side note. I appreciated that it handled kind of the like both the petty feelings about that and the very practical realities of like who got attention in the movement yeah um but back to phyllis <laughs> and, the, and, the, and the magic carpet ride intro which is a, sh- a song that i listened to a lot after watching the show um but part of why i love that is it really set up uh her the kind of anti-hero-ness of phyllis schlafly mm. and there's an amazing review that I love and have been meaning to bring up here by Emily Vanderwerf at Vox. I know, she's great. So great. Um, where she talks about that, like, the show's ace really is the discomfort that you feel in having Phyllis Schlafly and the anti-ERA movement be the, the scrappy underdog that you root for. That the show really scrambles loyalties because most of the viewers of the show are for, I actually I cannot imagine watching a show not being like a, a feminist or pro ERA at least in this um in the, at this time period and so but the way that the show is structured where the ERA at the beginning of the show is seems all but assured um they're celeb- like the feminists are celebrating and Phyllis is kind of starting at the bottom of just you know she's the the and Emily writes about this in her view, she's kind of the force they don't see coming. She's grassroots organizing uh, an opposition movement um, that is continually underestimated. It, it's really uncomfortable to sit with. And, and Emily Vanderwerf makes the point that it actually, the way that it's framed is kind of like Norma Ray, <laughs> which is a movie starring Sally Field um, about a labor organizer who the, the management you know, continually as a woman and as a worker underestimates and at their, at their own expense as she organizes a union. And um, so to have type of like the Norma Ray treatment of such an odious figure as Phyllis Schlafly 
it's a really, really dicey idea and it's a fine line to walk. Um, it's also thrilling and I think useful, as we've discussed many times already, to sit with that discomfort and recognize, you know, why was that appealing to people? And a people who were not as hardline ideological as Phyllis Schlafly. Yeah. Um, who was, you know, pretty classic anti like in and out of the show, classic anti-hero, you know, understood power and how it flowed and how it worked and how to harness it for herself um, in her way <laughs> to maintain the status quo. So, um, yeah, that was just, uh, I, that's really kicked off for me very early in the first episode. And I, I thoroughly enjoyed that ride, even if at times I was like, I can't believe that we're sitting with her for, through all of this. Yeah. I think that fits very well with something the show does really well from my perspective being a historian is capture the mood of the time rather than the mood of us going back to the time, right? They were the underdogs, right? You know, I did my little woohoo for Emily because I have liked her writing for so long. And I think she makes a really good point about the tropes and how they make us feel uncomfortable. But I, what I appreciate also about it is she is not discussing it as if the writers are mainly sort of creating the story and the show is a show, but she's talking about how portraying the real history lends the show to viewers seeing it through particular existing tropes mm -hmm. that can then feel uncomfortable, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which is one of the many things why I really appreciated that review. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely, I definitely agree with that. It never feels like I said earlier, pandering or didactic. It's actually, um, it, it presents a lot that is rich for interpretation. That's I, as a viewer, it's another reason why, on every level, stylistically, Which thematically, structurally. This show is. <laughs> we love Mrs. America. <laughs> Man, we could go on for several more episodes, but I think that that is plenty for now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm sure we'll bring it up in talking about other art, Definitely. mainly to be like, but if Davi Waller had been writing gone with the wind or whatever <laughs> thank, I, can I thank you Davi Waller for this gift and the writing stuff <laughs> I love this show I'm glad we got to talk about it um, yeah until next time thanks for listening this podcast is hosted by Adrian Horton and Paul Adler Thank you to our wonderful producer, the incomparable Aaron Taylor, who also made our logo. Our intro music is by BJ Block and Don Pemberton, and the music you hear now is by Andy G. Cohen. This is a three-person independent project that we work on in our spare time, so we can't promise it will be regular, but we hope it stays relevant. If you liked what you heard, please rate, share, subscribe. And if you have suggestions for future episodes or topics, please email us at usaunreal at gmail.com.